praise you this morning for your love. We praise you for your love as it was shown to us at the cross. Our hearts are full of gratefulness as we think upon the death of your son. It was not apart from your plan. It was not against your will. But it was your desire to crush him so as to make a payment for our sin. We thank you for your love shown to us at the cross. We come here this morning as worshippers of you. Our whole lives we lay down in submission because of your love for us. We rehearse again the truth that our sins are forgiven in Christ. You have justified us, you've brought us into your family, and you've given to us an everlasting hope. So it's our joy to praise you. And as we've already asked this morning, as we come now to your word, we ask that our worship would continue. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes, our ears, guide us as we seek to learn from your word and continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been my joy to be with you these last six weeks. I was texting with John just this morning and telling him as much. I know that he's eager to be back with you and you're eager to have him. And I think Bethany are eager to have me back. So all good things have to come to an end. And tomorrow morning, far too early, that is the case for us as we head uh, to the airport. But it's been a privilege for us to be with you. And uh, sickness did come upon our family this last week. We've been praying each day that I'd be able to be here today, and the Lord's allowed that, but Laura's at home with the kids. Um, but on behalf of her and, and our whole family, we wanted to thank you for your hospitality and just the blessing that you've been to us as we've been here. Uh, as I said last week, our series in Habakkuk uh, came to an end, as it were, <clears throat> at least within the book, and so this one last remaining Sunday, I thought, to dip into the New Testament and to note the various times that New Testament authors use uh, Habakkuk's words in order to make their point and their argument, and that happens actually three times. So, uh, something like three mini-sermons, I guess you might think of it as this morning. We'll be jumping around the New Testament a little bit and beginning in Romans chapter 1. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. Long after Habakkuk went to glory, the problem of suffering persisted. Long after the end of the Babylonian exile, long after the people had returned to the land, the problems of injustice, and evil continued. By no means were they located and restricted to Habakkuk's day, which means long after Habakkuk's time, God's people have continued to wrestle with the same questions that the prophet asked, not least, why does God allow injustice to prevail? The good news is, long after Habakkuk, went to glory, his truths are still valid. They're still meaningful. They're still important for us to hold on to. I would encourage you to be much in your Old Testament as part of your own personal Bible reading, and I trust that these last few weeks have shown you just how relevant the Old Testament Scriptures are for us today. Habakkuk, amongst all of the other books given to us in the Old Testament, 
is there for our own edification. It's meaningful for God's people today. Something of a line of evidence that demonstrates the ongoing testimony of Habakkuk's message today is simply the observation that as we move to the New Testament, three times various authors make use of the prophet Habakkuk in different contexts and towards different ends. On three different occasions, New Testament authors appeal to the book of Habakkuk in order to make their case. Specifically, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews. Arguably, the three most emphatic and declarative statements of New Testament doctrine, those three books, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, all appeal to Habakkuk at various points. And interestingly, each time it's the same specific verse that we've read already this morning, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this morning I want to look at those three uses of Habakkuk, Romans 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10, and as it were, to hold up that single verse, that single thought, the righteous shall live by faith, and to turn it slowly before our eyes as a precious jewel, to look at that singular thought in three different contexts and to understand, as it were, the precious nature of our faith. You'll remember when God spoke those works, words to Habakkuk, it was an exhortation for him to be patient. Habakkuk had been wrestling with God, asking why he was allowing such injustice to prevail, and God assured him it would not go on forever. Quite the opposite, eventually the Babylonians would be punished for their violence. And so God spoke to Habakkuk and he assured him the vision will come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass immediately, be patient because the righteous shall live by faith. The New Testament authors pick up on this verse and they use it to show the multifaceted nature of faith and just how precious it is to live a life wherein we trust each and every day in God's providence. In Romans, we'll see that the righteous escape the wrath of God by faith. In Galatians, the righteous enter into newness of life by faith. And in Hebrews, the righteous persevere through all kinds of affliction, thereby pleasing God by faith. And in each context, the message is simple. The point is that we don't do any of these things in our own strength. We don't escape the wrath of God by our own merit. We don't enter into newness of life in Christ by our own strength. We do not persevere in the Christian life and therefore please God through our own labors. In each case, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, as we look at these three uses of Habakkuk in the New Testament, may the Lord renew our faith this morning. However it is, we come to the Lord this morning, and whatever struggles we each bring, may He strengthen our confidence in Him and our faith in His gospel, so that we may enjoy the preciousness of our faith and praise Him in response. Beginning with Romans chapter 1, and you may have already seen the verse 
where we find Habakkuk is verse 17 of this first chapter. I'll just read the paragraph to give us context. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Some very, very well-known verses from the Apostle Paul in perhaps his most well-known epistle. Romans is perhaps the most declarative expression of the gospel we have in all of the Bible, the most sustained theological exposition, answering the question, what is the gospel? Every single chapter of this dense epistle exposits the manifold riches of the gospel. It's interesting to note Paul is writing to believers. He writes to a church whom at the time he had not visited, and his desire is to be with them, specifically so as to preach the gospel, verse 15. After his introductory comments, Paul says, I want to be with you to preach the gospel. It's always a sobering reminder to me that as believers, we must never get beyond the gospel. Romans is not primarily an evangelistic letter, though certainly God has used it to bring people to a saving knowledge of Him. The purpose of writing was not primarily evangelistic. Paul wrote to edify and to encourage and to bring a, a deeper unity to the church in Rome, and he does so by reminding them simply of the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, verse 15. Now, you may have noticed as I was reading that short paragraph just how many times Paul writes the word for. Whenever we study especially New Testament epistles, it's critically important that we give close attention to these connecting words, words like for, because they're the means by which the argument is constructed. And here, Paul uses a, a number of fours, and so we need to pay attention to them to understand exactly how it is he came to rely on Habakkuk chapter 2 in his opening argument. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, said Paul. I want to be with you. Verse 16, for the reason that I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, verse 16, is because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel and therefore I want to preach it. Or you might put it like this, I'm, I want to be with you to preach the gospel because I'm proud of it. I boast in it as we were just singing. I boast in the gospel and for that reason I want to preach it to you. Well, why aren't you ashamed of it, Paul? Why are you so proud of the gospel? Second half of verse 16, for because it's the power of God for salvation. That's why I'm not ashamed of it, because the gospel is the power of God by which people are saved. Everyone who believes is saved by it, Jews and Greeks. Well, how do you know it's the power of God for salvation, Paul? Verse 17, for, because, the reason I know that it's the power of God for salvation, verse 17, is because... In it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this is a tricky phrase and has caused much debate throughout the history of the church, as perhaps you know. 
It was particularly instrumental in Martin Luther's understanding of the gospel that sparked the Reformation. The righteousness of God there, that phrase, does not here refer to an attribute of God, though certainly God is righteous. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we read of His righteousness, and it is speaking about an attribute of God, but not here. Here, the righteousness of God speaks about the crediting act that He gives to everyone who trusts in Him. God credits a level of righteousness to the sinner when they put their faith in Him. Such would be suggested by the emphasis in this context on faith and the fact that we seem to be the, the object of Paul's thoughts here. The righteous will live by faith. How are they declared righteous? They receive an alien righteousness. That is the gospel. If it was an attribute of God, all Paul would be saying is the gospel reveals our unworthiness and doesn't offer a solution. Actually, the gospel reveals our unworthiness and gives us a solution, namely God gives us a righteousness that is not our own. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, how does that righteousness become effective for the sinner, and he goes on to tell us it is from faith. It's by trusting, by accepting God at His Word. And certainly, Paul doesn't unpack the full extent of the message here, but he will do throughout the rest of his letter to the Romans. We put our faith in the sufficiency of Christ's perfect life his death on the cross and His resurrection as a payment for our sin. We take God at His word that Christ is who He said He is and He did what He said He would do, and by trusting in that message, we receive this righteousness. That is the gospel. We don't receive this righteousness by working hard. We don't receive our approval from God that puts us in right standing with Him by laboring in our own strength. That's not the gospel. It is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. And then notice Paul goes on and says, for faith. Again, it's a difficult concept to wrestle with. What does Paul mean here when he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith? Simply stated, as a believer puts their faith in Christ for salvation, that then leads to a life of faith. It's not the case that we put our faith in Christ for salvation and thereafter we strive in our own strength to somehow obtain to glory. Rather, the nature of life for the believer is that they place their faith in Christ and thereafter, every single day is a day of faith. They keep trusting as a means of going on. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then Paul uses the quotation from Habakkuk, as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. You see how this now fits into Paul's argument. This is his proof text. Paul is validating what he has just said. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Those who put their trust in God and His gospel live a life of faith, and I know that I'm right on this one, says Paul, because the Old Testament saints agree with me. This has already been articulated in the Old Testament Scriptures, not least by Habakkuk, when he said, the righteous shall live by faith. They don't have one isolated moment of faith. It's not simply that their faith kicks in when they desperately need it, but rather the manner of living is by faith. From beginning to end, every day is a day of faith. 
And we could pause there and simply rejoice, give thanks to God that He has gifted you such faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, we could pause at the end of verse 17 and simply reflect and praise God that He has gifted you faith such that now God declares you to be righteous. You could ask and pray that God would strengthen your faith and enable you to live more such that each and every day is a day of trusting Him, not going about things in your own strength, but simply depending on Him because that is how the righteous ought to live. But I think it's important to go one verse on because Paul then makes a very, very important point that shows us the outworking of a life that is lived by faith. You see, in our English Bibles, we often have the text broken up. There's a white space between my verse 17 and 18, and sometimes that's helpful, but often we'll miss the continuation of the argument if you look at verse 18, you can see it begins again with that word for. So there's a continuation of Paul's thought as he goes into something of a new topic when he says, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now let's try and connect and understand Paul's argument. He says in verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith because the wrath of God is revealed. So what then is the nature of that for at the beginning of verse 18? What is the relationship or the connection between verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith, and the fact that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? Simply stated, the answer is the righteous shall live by faith because they have no other option. The righteous shall live by faith because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and there is absolutely nothing that you can do to escape it. That is what Paul will start to explain as he moves into the very first part of his argument explaining the gospel, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all without excuse, end of verse 20. Paul will show that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and there is not one of us who is able to escape it. In our own strength, we do not possess the righteousness required to evade the wrath of God. And so, therefore, the only possible option is that we live by faith. That is why Paul is able to say at the beginning of verse 18, 4, this is not entirely disconnected, but it's a continuation of his thinking. The righteous shall live by faith because the wrath of God is coming and we have no other option. Those that try to live apart from faith will face the wrath of God. If you're here this morning and have never put your faith in the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must understand the wrath of God of God still rests upon you. It rests upon you, and it is more fierce, weighty, unbearable, and everlasting than you can possibly understand. And there is no amount of hard work or good intentions that will get you out from under the wrath of God, and it is only up to God and not you when that wrath is fully made manifest in your life. It is God's timing that decides when you will face the wrath of God. The only possible means by which you have to get out from under the wrath of God is to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith because we have no other option. 
Now again, for the Christian, this is a cause of great rejoicing. It should be for us a cause of great gratitude. I think often Christians don't think frequently about the wrath of God in the way that the Scripture commends us to. Have you ever considered just how frequently the Scriptures speak to Christians, the church, about the wrath of God? Even though we are safe in the gospel from it, we are still exhorted to think upon it. If not, so as to bring about in our hearts a renewed sense of gratitude for the faith that God has gifted to us. Rejoice this morning. The righteous shall escape the wrath of God by faith. And if you are in Christ, then that means you. Praise God for the work that is accomplished through the death of His Son in your life. Well, that's the first use of Habakkuk 2.4 in the New Testament. Let's turn now to the second use, the letter of Galatians in chapter 3, also written by the Apostle Paul, but undoubtedly a very different context. Galatians is not Romans. In Romans, Paul was setting forth a dense, extended treatise of the gospel so as to encourage the Christians in Rome, in Galatians, Paul is on the defense. Paul is defending the very message that he had preached to them earlier because it has come under attack by the Judaizers who had muddied the waters and were teaching that in order to be accepted by God, you had to work. Faith plus works is what's required for a man to be justified. So Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, very sharp and pointy in places, to correct the theological error. We'll pick up in verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul writes, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There's lots of Old Testament quotations that Paul uses throughout Galatians, and even in this paragraph here, and you see there in verse 11 his use of Habakkuk chapter 2. The point that Paul makes is relatively simple. It cannot be that the way of salvation, the way of being justified before God, is a combination of faith and works. It cannot be. And the reason it cannot be is because, in verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, since the Old Testament Scriptures have taught us, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. One rabbi estimated that there were 242 positive commands in the Pentateuchal Law, and 365 prohibitions. Impossible for any man to keep perfectly. And thus, Paul is teaching the Galatians, if you choose that your way of salvation will be 
by upholding the law, you will ultimately be rendered a curse. You will not attain to the justified state that you desire because you are incapable of upholding the law perfectly. Somewhere along the way, you will fail. And it won't be later, it will be sooner in your efforts. Thus, as the law has taught us, you will be cursed through the very means that you try to obtain salvation. Paul actually quotes again from the Old Testament law in verse 12 when he says, the one who does them shall live by them. What's interesting is this verse is quoted by Jesus when he was teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, he interacts with a self-righteous Jew who seemingly thinks that he could obtain salvation by upholding the law. Jesus asks him to summarize the law, and the man promptly does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus quotes, do this and you'll live. Go ahead, do, do this, live by the law and you'll live if you're able. And then to illustrate his insufficiency to uphold the law, Jesus teaches to that self-righteous man the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was that man by the side of the road and the Levite walks past him, and the priest walks past him, neglecting to help him. And then the Samaritan comes and is a neighbor to him. And as one commentator rightly says, if Paul were teaching that parable to the Galatians, he would have encouraged them to see themselves not as the Samaritan, but as the man by the side of the road. Understand just how destitute is your condition. Understand that you cannot pick yourself up and get yourselves out of the ditch. Understand that your intentions might be good, but there is absolutely no possible means by which you will live a life that meets perfectly God's ordained standard. If that is the path that you will choose, you will be pronounced as a curse. And so that leaves only one other option. This is Paul's argument to the Galatians all the way through. It's wonderfully encapsulated in this paragraph. You either choose works and faith and you'll be cursed or you live by faith. And again, we see the precious nature of faith as he draws on Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. It is only the life that is lived by faith that will render you acceptable before a holy God. If you come bringing any sense of self-sufficiency to the table, you'll be cursed. But it's when you let go of every sense of your being worthy and you cast yourself upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are finally accepted before God. Paul goes on to explain that very irony when he says, you'll be cursed, but Jesus became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree in order to be rendered the curse that we deserve so that now, by living by faith, we can be accepted before God. And that is the doctrine of justification for which Paul had to fight amongst the Christians of Galatia. And notice, it is not simply the doctrine of justification that hangs in the balance. But everything thereafter pertaining to the Christian life. Look at verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see, if you read through Galatians, you see as you get towards the end of the letter, Paul issues these wonderful, rich imperatives to the Christians in Galatia, not seeking to create a rod for their back, having just told them you're to live by faith, but he wants that faith to have its full effect in their lives. They are to walk in the Spirit. They're to exhibit and to exude the fruits of the Spirit. Those fruits of the Spirit that we know so well at the end of Galatians are the outworking of a life that is lived by faith. We don't strive in our own strength to be people of love, joy, hope, but rather by returning to the cross of Jesus Christ, we find the grace that we need to obey the commands that are given at the end of the letter. And so you see, if you get this wrong, if you misunderstand the doctrine of justification, the rest of the Christian life will be an epic failure. You won't live in a way that is in step with the Spirit. You won't enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. You won't enter into this newness of life that the gospel so richly offers. And Paul's desire is that the Galatians would experience all of Christ. They would know Christ in their justification, and they would know Christ in their sanctification. As Christians, we should be abounding in the fruit of the Spirit. As Christians, we should be in step with the Holy Spirit, enjoying His ministry to us every single day. How? We return to the cross, and we put our faith afresh in the completed work of the Lord Jesus. Again, it seems like the doctrine of justification is one that Christians can all too quickly leave behind them. We understand its importance as it relates to initial salvation. I have to put my faith in Christ and not my own works, and in so doing, I'm saved. And then so often we move on from it and never really return to the doctrines by which we've been saved. But by showing us the relationship between justification and life in the Spirit, Paul urges us to keep in view the necessity of a life lived in faith and not by works. We keep coming back to the truth of our justification. We keep coming back every single day to the wonder of the cross because it is the means by which we move forward in the Christian life. So may we this morning enjoy this newness of life in the Spirit. How? By living by faith. Well, there's one more use of Habakkuk, and that is found in Hebrews 10. Turn there with me. The third and final time that the New Testament makes use of this verse, if we understand the precious nature of faith, as that which keeps us from the wrath of God, which brings us into newness of life in Christ, we see also that faith causes us to persevere, thereby pleasing God. At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, we read, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. 
Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, Hebrews isn't Galatians and it isn't Romans. Another different context, we're unsure of the author, whoever it was, was writing to a group of first century Christians, most of whom it seems had come from Judaism and had enjoyed for a period union with Christ and the benefits of being in a relationship with Him, but then there is on the horizon, it would seem, the possibility of persecution, suffering for their faith, and the great temptation for these believers is to revert to their old religion, to go back to the ways of Judaism. And so, as I'm sure you know, throughout the letter, the author sets forth the superiority of Christ over and above the tenets of the Jewish faith. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than the sacrificial system. The author keeps showing them that Christ is worthy of their full allegiance no matter what that may bring. The letter to the Hebrews is a sustained exhortation to persevere. It's a wonderful letter for us to read today because it reminds us of the biblical doctrine of perseverance. All too often we can slip into some sense of easy believism. I've put my faith in Christ, I have my ticket to glory, nothing else is required of me. The Bible says no such thing. Those who have put their faith in Christ will persevere. Those who have put their faith in Christ will strive to the end. Without in any way contradicting the gospel of grace alone by faith alone, the New Testament and the Old affirms the doctrine of perseverance. And Hebrews gives a very concentrated exposition of that doctrine. And the author here says you need to look forward and anticipate the coming one. Verse 36, speaking here about Jesus, he sets their gaze upon the return of their Messiah. One of the means by which you are to persevere is to look beyond your immediate circumstances to the final horizon of salvation history and trust and exercise trust in the fact that Christ will soon come. Your current level of discomfort will not go on forever. Your current trial will not go on forever, but Christ will come. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. Now here we can see perhaps more so than even the uses in Romans and Galatians how Habakkuk, or the author to the Hebrews, uses the verse in a way that more parallels how Habakkuk used it in his book. You'll remember God spoke these words to Habakkuk originally saying, Don't worry, because your present trial won't go on forever. And in a similar way, the author to the Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus, He'll come back, this will not go on forever. You need to be patient, as it were. The contexts are very much parallel. And so we understand the precious nature of faith, the multifaceted precious nature of saving faith, is such that not only does it mean you escape the wrath of God, not only does it mean you enter into newness and fullness of life with the Spirit, 
but it means that you cling on to the blessed hope that is ours in Christ, namely that He is coming for His own. And this is to be and always has been a means by which Christians persevere. I would pause and just encourage you there to lay hold of this truth. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have been instructed to look forward as a means of persevering. We're not all that skilled today at lifting our eyes above the immediate. We we tend to be very well trained in looking at what is immediately before us and not much further beyond that, whereas the Bible and the church has always exhorted people of faith to look beyond their present circumstances and exercise trust in the return of Christ. And then the author says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's a warning The letter to the Hebrews is full of warnings, sober warnings issued to Christians. If you don't live in this way, my soul, God says, has no pleasure in you. If you don't heed this teaching and lift up your eyes and look forward to the return of Christ, my soul has no pleasure in you. Because what will happen if you don't look up and look forward to the return of Christ, what will happen is that when the day of testing comes, you'll shrink back. You won't live in a manner that puts your faith on display and boasts in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not be pleasing to God. Now, the flip side of that warning is the wonderful encouragement How can I please God? How can I live in such a way that God says He has pleasure in me? Well, it's important to remember that in Christ, He does have pleasure in you. He's wrapped you in the righteousness of Christ, and for that reason, He celebrates you. Beyond that, your day-to-day obedience is what pleases God. But it is, again, not an obedience that is worked out in your own strength. That kind of obedience does not honor the Lord. The obedience that is by faith brings much pleasure to God. And so you can be greatly encouraged this morning in so much as a daily daily habit, you look forward to the return of Christ and allow it to underpin and guide your daily efforts, God takes great pleasure in you. God rejoices in you and celebrates you because of your faith. And so, we see the precious nature of faith is that it reminds us of Christ's return. It guides our everyday living towards that great day when Christ will appear. Our responsibility is wonderfully easy in this respect. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that we could never have saved ourselves, never escaped the wrath of God, never ourselves entered into newness of life in the Spirit. We ourselves could never persevere through the trials that the Lord ordains, and yet faith is sufficient in all of these respects to carry us through. The faith that God gives to us is sufficient for us to keep going and to live in such a way that He is honored and the gospel is made plain in our lives. God is glorified and takes pleasure in us, and we live like this each and every day until Christ returns. I pray that that will be true for all of us, that God will gift us yet more faith and sustain us by our faith until His Son comes home.
Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the precious nature of our faith. There are undoubtedly other texts we could go to to see just how wonderful is the faith that you have gifted to us. Yet this morning, just through these three uses of Habakkuk in the New Testament, we see our faith means we never have to face your wrath. Our faith justifies us and brings us into newness of life with the Holy Spirit. Our faith causes us to persevere and thereby brings great pleasure to you. Father, I do pray for anyone here this morning who does not have saving faith in the Lord Jesus, that you would gift to them this faith. Open their eyes to the reality of their sin. Cause them to repent, to cast themselves upon Christ in faith. We give you thanks for everyone here that you have given saving faith. May we live from faith for faith. May our lives be by faith trusting in you in each, each and every day and rejoicing in the wonderful riches of the faith that you have given to us. Remind us frequently through your word of the truth that we do not need to face your wrath, that we walk now with the Spirit and that we persevere until Christ comes again. Be honored, we commit ourselves to you in this respect, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Please stand then for the benediction. Now to him who is able to sustain us, who has gifted to us this faith, may he be honored in our lives as we depart from this place. Amen. Oh,